Catholics across the world celebrate the Feast of the Assumption on August 15th. This feast dates back at least to the 5th century, so Pope Pius XII was hardly introducing a novel idea when on November 1st, 1950, he solemnly defined the dogma of Mary's ascent, body and soul, into heaven with the words of the apostolic constitution, Munificentissimus Deus. We pronounce, declare, and define it to be a divinely revealed dogma that the Immaculate Mother of God, the Ever-Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. This dogmatic declaration notwithstanding, there are at least a couple of questions whose answers remain unsettled. One is, did Mary actually die before being taken to heaven? The bulk of tradition points toward death, but there are strong voices on the other side. The second question is the one Scott and I will tackle in this episode. Where was Mary living at the time of her assumption, when the days of her earthly journey came to an end? Again, there is a more common answer, which is Jerusalem, but some argue for Ephesus instead. We'll travel to the eastern Mediterranean and back 2,000 years to examine the cases for both. The site of the Assumption of Mary, Jerusalem or Ephesus, this time on Catholic History Trek. God bless America. God love you. I want these to be my first words of greeting to you. They will be the concluding words on each broadcast. I am not the Catholic candidate for president. I am the Democratic Party's candidate for president. Annuncio Lopez, Gaudium Papam. You've embarked on a Catholic history trek. The 19th chapter of the Gospel of John records these lines. When Jesus therefore had seen his mother and the disciples standing whom he loved, he saith to his mother, Woman, behold thy son. After that, he saith to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own. John records that Jesus gave the Blessed Virgin Mary into his care. And tradition tells us that at some point after the crucifixion, John left Jerusalem for Ephesus was later exiled at Patmos, and by the end of the first century, had died. But where was Mary during John's timeline? Specifically, where was she when she was assumed into heaven? In Ephesus or Jerusalem? According to the testimony of the earliest Christians, the overwhelming answer is Jerusalem. The Transitus Mariae, which are an apocryphal body of texts which describe the Dormition and Assumption, all have the events taking place in Jerusalem. Usually, they place it at the foot of the Mount of Olives, the Kidron Valley, Gethsemane, or the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which are essentially the same place, just outside the old city walls of Jerusalem. The oldest of these transitus accounts was found on Codex 1982, discovered in the Vatican archives in 1971. This copy dates to the 2nd or 3rd century, meaning this tradition of Jerusalem as the correct location would go back at least as far as the lifetime of some of John's own disciples, like Polycarp. In the 3rd or 4th century, a pair of writings attributed to Dionysius the Areopagite both mention the tomb of the Blessed Virgin Mary being at Gethsemane, as do a couple of late 4th century letters which claim that the Blessed Virgin Mary passed the remainder of her days at Jerusalem. 
In the early 5th century, a chronicle of a pilgrim from Armenia describes visiting the tomb of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Also in the 5th century, the patriarch Dioscorsus mentions the Church of the Holy Mary in Jehoshaphat's field, which is also called the Kidron Valley. By the 6th century, this church marking Mary's assumption regularly appeared in descriptions of the city, including the Breviary of Jerusalem, which was basically a guidebook for pilgrims. This breviary says it is located at the foot of the Mount of Olives and contains her sepulcher. Many saints named Jerusalem as the location where her immaculate body was laid in the tomb, including St. John Damascene, St. Modestus, St. Sophronius, the Patriarch of Jerusalem, St. Andrew the Bishop of Crete, John of Thessalonica, Hippolytus of Thebes, and the Venerable Bede. The Travels of Sir John Mandeville, a widely read travelogue of the medieval era, described Jerusalem as the location of the Church of Her Sepulchre, and even explains why the church was situated below ground level, which is how you'll find it today. This church, which all these saints and accounts speak of, was built in the 5th century, believed to be atop the Sepulchre of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Substantial renovations of this church in 1972 revealed a much older church at this site, which this 5th century church was built over. Showing the reverence was given to the site as the site of Mary's Assumption, dating back as far as the earliest centuries of Christianity. Archaeological excavations have also revealed that many features of the original topography and sepulcher align very well with the various transitus accounts. But these transitus Mariae provide more than the location of her assumption taking place in Jerusalem. They also provide details of the assumption itself. The most well-known transitus is the 6th century work titled the Book of the Most Holy Virgin, the Mother of God, written by Pseudo-Melito, meaning the, the book's author is listed as St. Melito of Sardis to give it more credibility, but he was not the actual author. This Book of the Most Holy Virgin described how the apostles who were spread across the world engaged in missionary activities were miraculously lifted on clouds and brought to the house where Mary dwelt in Jerusalem to be present for her passing. It provides details of Jesus appearing with a multitude of angels, Mary's soul rising to heaven, the apostles carrying her to the new tomb in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and an interesting detail of a Jewish priest whose arm was stricken with paralysis when he grabbed her coffin in an attempt to stop the procession. It also explains that after she was buried in the tomb, her body was raised from the grave and assumed to paradise. One of our first Catholic History Trek episodes even makes reference to this calling of the apostles to Jerusalem. St. James the Greater, who was preaching in Spain, was prompted to return to Jerusalem upon having a vision of Mary, known as Our Lady of the Pillar. Whether he returned by cloud or by ship, I can't say, but he was then martyred in Jerusalem, not in Ephesus. His bodily remains were returned to Spain and reside at the destination of the popular Camino pilgrimage, which was covered in that episode on pilgrimages, way back in episode 3. St. Gregory of Tours in the 6th century described the apostles being called together at her house, as did St. Germanus of Constantinople, who spoke of this gathering at Gethsemane. Another interesting aspect of Mary's assumption in Jerusalem comes from John of Damascus, who claimed in the 5th century that the emperor Marcion's wife, Pulcheria, sent a request to Bishop Juvenal of Jerusalem for a relic of St. Mary, 
Juvenile then explained that while Mary's body had been buried in Gethsemane, there were no bodily relics, as she had been assumed bodily to heaven. All that remained in the tomb were her burial cloths. The empress then asked for, and received, these wraps as relics of the virgin. Different transitus accounts provide different details, including one version in which St. Thomas was late in arriving. He did have to travel from India, after all. But they all agree on the basics that Mary passed from this life in Jerusalem and was buried in a tomb, which became the tomb upon which the church of her assumption was built, in Jerusalem. These transitus provide both a foundation for the belief in the bodily assumption of Mary and for the location of this assumption having taken place in Jerusalem. They were well circulated during the early and medieval era and into modern times. And based on their depictions, the 17th century Acts of St. John, according to Prochorus, places her assumption in Jerusalem, with John then traveling alone to Ephesus, and Alphonsus Liguori, described in his work, The Glories of Mary, how she visited the holy places of Jerusalem, then retired into her poor cottage there to prepare for death. Could the testimony of so many saints and so many written records all be wrong in unanimously listing Jerusalem as the location of the Assumption? Would so much time, money, and effort have been given to build the Church of Mary's Assumption in Jerusalem if it was supposed to have been built in Ephesus, more than 1,100 miles away? That would be like building a new baseball stadium for the Cincinnati Reds and mistakenly placing it in Denver, Colorado. Would the Byzantine Empress have sent a request for relics to the Bishop of Jerusalem if Mary had been buried in the Empress' own backyard at Ephesus? Kevin will tell us why some think all of these points are wrong. Well, as Scott indicated, the question of the place where Mary's earthly life ended is closely tied to the evidence relating to the life and death of the Apostle John. St. Irenaeus, writing in the late 2nd century, said that John wrote his gospel while residing at Ephesus. St. Gregory of Tours, writing in the 6th century, speaks of the house in Ephesus where John lived. There seems to be, for many centuries at this point, fairly general, if not universal, acceptance of the fact that Mary lived with John and that they lived together in Ephesus at least for a time. The more disputed point is whether they were living there at the time of Mary's death or dormition, or had they moved back to Jerusalem. Scott made the case for Jerusalem. The fullest and most forceful argument for Ephesus that I've seen is a 1965 book, Our Lady of Ephesus, by Father Bernard Deutsch, whose argument I will essentially be summarizing here. Deutsch lays out the story of Mary's house and Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich. In the 1820s, the German poet Clemens Brentano transcribed descriptions of the visions of the mystic Anne Catherine Emmerich, who had seen detailed scenes from the life of Jesus and Mary. One of those visions included a description of the location and appearance of Mary's home, locating it near Ephesus. In 1881, a French priest, using that description, discovered the remains of a stone building and believed it to be the house of Mary. It was largely ignored at the time, but ten years later, a Vincentian priest, Henry Jung, undertook a more extensive investigation. He had been urged to the task by a French daughter of charity, Sister Marie de Mandat-Grancy, who was stationed at a hospital in Smyrna, Turkey, and was convinced of the truth of Emmerich's visions. On July 19, 1891, with Emmerich's book in hand, a small party led by Jung, after a long day of searching, rediscovered the ruins. 
They then learned that a community of Christians in a nearby village who were descended from early Ephesus Christians had long made pilgrimages to this place. Sister Marie orchestrated the purchase of the site. It was gradually excavated, restored, and made known throughout the world. Popes from Leo XIII on have looked favorably. Paul VI, John Paul II, and Benedict XVI all personally visited the shrine. So that's the story of the discovery of Mary's house, known locally as Panaya Kapulu, the door of the Virgin. But even those who embrace the Jerusalem tradition can accept this much, that Mary lived there. The question is, where did she die? Proponents of the Ephesus tradition acknowledge the evidence in favor of the Jerusalem tradition, such as the transitus accounts and the location of Mary's tomb in the churches of the Assumption and of the Dormition. Deutsch, drawing on the Italian Mariologist Gabriel Rossini, concludes that all the earliest claims regarding the Jerusalem site can be traced back to Pseudo-Dionysus or Pseudodenis, the apocryphal writer of the 5th century that Scott described. In contrast, Deutsch cites at least two other traditions that support Ephesus. While these are both minor traditions, they are highly specific and localized. One is the Syrian Jacobites. This group was part of the Church of the East, or the Nestorian Church, that separated from the rest of Christianity, including the Western Catholic Church, following the Council of Chalcedon. The Jacobites have held since at least the 8th century that Ephesus was the site of Mary's Dormition. Deutsch sees it as significant that this tradition persisted through the centuries despite the fact that the Jerusalem tradition was otherwise virtually universal in Eastern Christianity. One interesting but puzzling piece in this discussion is Deutsch's citing of a letter of Ignatius of Antioch stating that Mary died and was buried in Ephesus. Deutsch draws this reference from the book of another Ephesus proponent, George Quatman, but notes that he couldn't locate this letter in the Patrologia Graeca, the collection of the Greek fathers. So if we happen to have any experts listening who can explain the discrepancy concerning the letter of Ignatius, let us know. The second local tradition is indeed very local. It's the group I briefly mentioned earlier. The Kirkyandites, people of the town of Kirkyanda, were the last lineal descendants of Ephesian Christians in the region. They were finally expelled by the Muslim Turks in the late 11th century. They had preserved a custom of annual pilgrimage to Panaya Kapulu to celebrate the Feast of the Dormition, believing that to be the site of the event. Deutsch argues that this belief and custom must have predated the Jerusalem tradition arising out of the transitus stories of the Apocrypha, because otherwise this little pocket of Christians would have gone along with the rest of the Greek Christian world in accepting the Jerusalem tradition. Deutsch's logic has a certain force, but it has to be admitted that this is not direct contemporary evidence. Then again, we don't really have any direct contemporary evidence, and that's why the debate rages on. Deutsch cites the writings of Pope Benedict XIV, who reigned during the mid-1700s, who wrote a treatise on the Feast of the Assumption in which, drawing on the 17th century French scholar Louis Tillemont, he cast doubt on the Jerusalem tradition. While he didn't exactly declare himself for Ephesus, he seemed to imply that it was the more reasonable account. Deutsch points to this as one of many indications that the views of recent popes, by recent we mean about the past 250 years, have been shifting toward Ephesus. As one example, Pope Leo XIII withdrew indulgences attached to pilgrimages to Mary's tomb in Jerusalem, while Pope St. Pius X attached indulgences to pilgrimages to Panaya Kapulu. Again, this is indirect evidence. 
Time prevents the presentation of every detail of Deutsch's case, but I can summarize as Deutsch himself did, again drawing on another scholar, the Vincentian Eugene Polin, who concluded in the late 19th century five points. First, there was no solid evidence for the Jerusalem theory prior to the 6th century, although I have to say Scott laid out a little bit of evidence that contradicts that. The second point, when church fathers spoke of Mary's tomb in Jerusalem, they relied on the Apocrypha. The third, the most respected scholars of the 17th and 18th centuries favored the Ephesus theory. Fourth, the most recent historians, again we're talking about 19th century, were divided between the two theories, and finally, the two traditions had roughly equal evidence and authority. To this late 19th century conclusion, Deutsch adds archaeological evidence accumulated since the discovery of Mary's house at Ephesus, which strongly affirms its origins as a first century construction, meaning it supports the view that Mary actually did live at Ephesus. In 1892, shortly after the site had been purchased by the Daughters of Charity, the local ordinary, the Bishop of Smyrna, organized a commission to investigate it. Archaeological experts on this commission affirmed that the construction on the site likely dated to the first century, and regarding its conformity to the description of Anne Catherine Emmerich, the report concluded, both as to location and as to interior design, it corresponds fully and entirely to those things which Catherine Emmerich said in her revelations concerning the house of the Blessed Virgin at Ephesus. Interestingly, later excavations further confirmed Emmerich's visions. The foundations of what had been a chapel in the rear of Mary's house were unearthed in 1894. So not only had Emmerich never seen these features because she had never visited Turkey, these elements had not even been visible at the time of Emmerich's life. Other archaeological finds affirmed that the area had been home to an early Christian community. Now one note that might seem to run against Emmerich's vision is the fact that no tomb of Mary has been discovered at Panaya Kapulu. Deutsch offers a twofold explanation. One, the wording of this part of Anne Catherine's account is different. Whereas she generally says, I saw, in her descriptions of the aspects of Mary's home that were later confirmed, regarding the tomb she said, I believe that this grave must still exist and will one day come to light. So, Deutsch says, maybe that passage was more a statement of opinion than a report of a divine vision. The second point is that the lack of a tomb doesn't in and of itself prove anything one way or the other regarding Panaya Kapulu as the site of the Assumption. For one thing, just because the tomb has not been discovered doesn't mean it never will. And for another, if in fact Mary didn't die, then it could be that there is no tomb. So, to weigh all this additional evidence, it seems to me that, once again, none of it clinches the case. It mostly reinforces the belief that Mary, in fact, lived in Ephesus, and that Panaya Kapulu is, in fact, the site of her house. But Jerusalem advocates might concede all that and still insist that she didn't die there. Still, this evidence at least provides some support for the reliability of the local traditions surrounding the site of Panaya Kapulu. So my own view is that we don't have conclusive evidence one way or the other. Jerusalem seems to be the stronger tradition in various ways, but I was convinced by Deutsch that there are also strong arguments, including ancient traditions, in favor of Ephesus. Like the amateur lawyers Kevin and I are, we have laid out the arguments for the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary in Jerusalem and in Ephesus. And we leave it to you, our jury of erudite listeners, to decide the verdict. My esteemed colleague presented the case for Mary's assumption in Ephesus, primarily on the backing of a lone visionary and a few historical outliers, which at most showed she lived in Ephesus. But the question before a jury is not where she lived, 
but where she died. And it is the contention of this Catholic history podcaster turned pseudo-lawyer that she was assumed in Jerusalem as per the testimony of the tradition, antiquity, architecture, and the saints. What do you think? Jerusalem? Ephesus? Feel free to comment and let us know what you think. And while you weigh the facts of the case before you, please consider taking a moment to rate or review Catholic History Trek. And if the deliberations run long, perhaps you would also consider subscribing to Catholic History Trek so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And while you're doing that, Kevin and I will offer this Marian prayer for all of our listeners, even those who haven't yet rated or subscribed. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, benedictus fructus ventris tui Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora par nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in hora mortis nostrae. Amen. Thank you for listening to Catholic History Trek. You can reach us at catholichistorytrek at gmail.com. <laughs>